Good morning. Now there's a buzz out there. People are moving around in a flap, far more than usual. The celebrity that's visiting must be a pretty big deal, otherwise they wouldn't be all in a tiz like they are. People are kind of running around on urgent business, or they're the type of person who looks busy by sending other people on urgent business. You know the sort. People come to your room where you're sitting. They ask you to follow them. Now they ask you, but there's no real interest in whether you say yes or no, so you go with them. You're taken to the audience hall and everything about it is luxury. And you, quite frankly, are a sweaty mess. Sorry, but it's true. The celebrities sat there. They are important and powerful. Not without scandal, but then what celebrity isn't? They look at you intently. They are dressed in rich clothes. They say that you have the floor. It's all yours. What are you going to say to them? Well, good morning, everyone. Today we are continuing in our series in the Book of Acts. And this morning we're going through uh, where Paul is a prisoner in Caesarea. Now it spans uh, three chapters, 24 to 26. And we're going to focus this morning right on the end where Paul is thrust in front of someone of considerable influence. Now, what would you say to people of power? What would you say if you had an audience with this man? Or maybe this man? Or this woman? What would you say to the people of power? Would you rant and rave? Would you tell them about what they've done wrong? Perhaps in some cases, it might just be what they've done wrong in this week. What would you say to those with power? Now, the monologue at the start was to try and uh, whet your appetite for putting yourself in the place of Paul in this passage. Because this is a, uh, a description of real people. You can verify this in other sources and real events that had real significance, both for those who were there, but we also believe that they have real significance for us today as we study this passage. So bear that in mind. It is a long passage that Sarah is about to read for us, but try and put yourself in the position of Paul as he meets power. Today's reading is taken from Acts 26 verses 12 to 32. On one of these journeys I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon King Agrippa, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun blazing all around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. The Lord replied, Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, 
so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place amongst those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and then to the Gentiles. I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. This is why some Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But God has helped me to this very day. So I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses would have said would happen. That the Messiah would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defence. You are out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. I am not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I am saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, do you think in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. The king rose, and with him the governor and Bernice, and those sitting with them. After they left the room, they began saying to one another, This man is not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment. Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Okay, thank you, Sarah, for that. Uh, today, we're going to look at uh, two main questions. One is, what's your story? And the other is, what's your response? So, as I mentioned, it's a long passage, and this is just the end of it. From chapters 24 to 26, Paul is in Caesarea. So, in order to properly understand uh, how he got there, we've got to look at what's gone before. So, just a bit of a, a context, a bit of recap um, bear with me. So just over two years ago, Paul was arrested in Jerusalem. Now the charges were, were false. Uh, the main one was that he had defiled the temple, uh, but there were others as well. Now he's taken into Roman custody and whilst under Roman guard, he's transferred from Jerusalem to Caesarea. Caesarea is the sort of administrative capital for that area that the Romans use. Here he's heard by Governor Felix. The case is brought before him and he has to give a defence. Now Felix understands that Paul is innocent, but also Felix is a bit of a ditherer. He also understands that in that area there is considerable unrest. There's a brooding tension between the subjugated uh, Jewish people and the Roman occupiers. So much so that not long after the Book of Acts is written, we have an open revolt, uh, which is harshly put down by the Romans, uh, ending in the destruction of the temple. So Felix doesn't want to upset the provincial apple cart by making a decision. So he keeps Paul uh, as a prisoner in there for two years in order to placate the uh, Jewish authorities 
And we're told that he also wants a, a bribe out of this as well. But I think he's intrigued by Paul's case as well because he often summons Paul for uh, discussions about what Paul had spoken of earlier. Now, after about two years of this, Felix is replaced by Governor Festus. Now, Festus is an altogether different governor. He is uh, decisive and efficient. And the first thing he does is he wants to get his house in order. So he sets about with intriguing cases such as Paul's. And very quickly, the Jewish authorities are invited to Caesarea to lay their case before Paul and before Festus. Now, Festus also understands that Paul is innocent of any uh, legal charge. But again, he has quickly picked up on the fact that there is simmering tension here that he does not want to upset. But he doesn't dither like Felix. Instead, what he does is he asks Paul if he would like to have his case heard in Jerusalem. That way he can placate the Jewish leaders. However, when he says he asks, it's a bit like when my parents would ask me if I wanted to apologise. It's not really a question, it's more a decision that's wrapped up as a question. Festus has the power of life or death over uh, the people that he presides over. So when he asks a question, it's not really a question. Paul's left with little choice. He knows he's not going to get a fair trial in Jerusalem. So he exerts his right as a Roman citizen to be heard in the Roman courts in Rome. So he appeals to Caesar. And now this leaves Festus with little options but to grant this request. But there's one issue for Festus here. He doesn't quite understand the charges put towards Paul. And Paul has to be transported to Rome under fairly heavy guard with a summary from the governor on his thoughts and the charges that are laid before Paul. Now, fortunately for Festus, timing is uh, on his side. Because he's a new governor, he's getting a courtesy visit from King Agrippa. Now, Agrippa is a puppet king. Uh, He's, he's a puppet king for the, for the Romans and he's Roman educated, but he is sympathetic to the Jews. He has a few powers, such as he's allowed to appoint the chief priest in Jerusalem. And what better person to hear out this intriguing case and allow Festus to write an appropriate report. So Agrippa agrees to hear Paul and his defence. Remember, this isn't a trial but Paul is having to give a defence for why he is here and the charges that are laid before him nonetheless. So there we have it. Paul is thrust in front of Agrippa. So what does he do? Does he run to rave at them? So I've been here for two years, completely unjust. What he does is he tells his story. He tells a story that's his, but also one that's far more ancient than him. In verses 1 to 11, he sets the scene. He's a highly educated man. He's a well-respected Pharisee. He's zealous in his persecution of the early church. We're told that he's pleased when they're punished through whipping and even when they're killed. Now, by saying this, Paul is showing two things. One is that his, where he is now his view, his worldview, as it were, is not out of a vacuum. It's not bits of mysticism just bundled together. 
nor is it due to a poor understanding of Judaism. He was a well-respected Pharisee. And it also shows that he had the courage of his previous convictions. He didn't just talk the talk, but he walked the walk. And in this case, walking meant persecuting Christians. And it was this walking of the persecution trip that took him to Damascus, where it says in verse 12 that his, uh, this sense of justice, he went to, do, to Damascus. And then what follows is a description of his revelation experience. We hear that by persecuting the church, he was actually persecuting Christ, God himself. Which is why in verse 14 it says, is it hard for you to kick against the goads? Now this was a, an ancient term describing the futility of when man tries to uh, outdo the divine. Goads were sort of sharpened sticks used to keep beasts of burden moving in the right direction. If you kicked against them, you're still going to go in the same direction as you were before, but it was going to be more sore in doing so. And here we have Paul kicking against the goads. Christ was going to build his church regardless of the persecution that he was doing. And what's more, he was going to build his church and Paul was going to be instrumental in doing so. Paul's conversion story is perhaps better phrased as his revelation story, but it, it's still characterised as this road to Damascus moment. You may have heard that phrase where it's a dramatic switch in opinion, a life changing event where you turn 180 degrees in the opposite direction. But I think here Paul describes it both as this 180 degree switch. After all, he went from persecuting Christians to proclaiming Christ but it's also an alignment. As Paul sets out his defence, it's not like he's saying that Judaism was wrong and all his studies had been in vain. He was actually saying that the laws and the prophecies of Judaism were fulfilled in the life, death and resurrection of Christ. This revelation was an alignment of promises made over millennia before. God's salvation story written from the beginning found its fulfilment and culmination in Christ. So it was an alignment, but it was also a 180 degree road to Damascus moment as Paul responds to this revelation. I think many of us, as we've responded to Christ, it's an echo of this, both as an alignment where we realise that Jesus shows us that he is the fulfilment of all that we knew to be true. Now, the easy question here and the, the kickback that you might have is, yes, but in our postmodernist, more sophisticated society, we don't really look at the Old Testament. We don't rely on Bronze Age stories of promises as a reference point. But I'd argue there's other types of alignments, other types of truths that we are aligned to. Common truths such as the knowledge that grasping for power and dominance is ugly and using that power to oppress the vulnerable and the weak is just wrong. And that with technological advances, we are not gonna solve the problem of the human heart. I mean, take the smartphone, for instance. It's such an amazing tool, and boy, has it been useful in lockdown. It can bring communities together, it can help educate. It's a brilliant tool, but we also know that it's an amazing tool for causing harm and shame and abuse. It is 
a technological advancement that's not actually solved anything, it's just made the problem more technologically advanced. I'd argue another truth is that wanting to be truly known and loved unselfishly despite yourself, despite whatever you've done in the past, to be known and to be loved despite it, is something that has gripped humanity for all time and always will. These are just a few observations and by no means exhaustive, but their experiences, their shared truths that require a coherent worldview to explain them. And I would argue that Christ's teachings, his life and his death and his resurrection are the culmination of and the alignment of and the answer to these truths as well as the prophet's promises that Paul talks about. And with that, we get the 180 degree road to Damascus moment as well. It might not happen in the same week. It might take a few or several years. But as we surrender to the truth of who Christ is and what he has done for us, as we turn it over and accept that gift, then as we let that revelation of who he is sink in and we stop trying to earn our salvation, love, validation, acceptance, and we stop wandering off and looking for it in imperfect means. And for me, it would have been looking for validation and security in my wife. Others, it might be family or work or social media, even a sports team. When we stop looking for them elsewhere and we stop trying to earn them and we accept the free gift of what Christ has given us, the transformation can be dramatic. So Paul has laid out all this ground, this background. But actually, the, what he focuses it on, what he then says, therefore, he focuses on his not his conversion, but his commission. In verses 19 to 23, he's effectively saying that the vision of Jesus matched everything that he knew to be true and what had been promised. And he effectively says, well, how can I do anything but obey? How can I do anything but live out my life in the truth of this? So that's his story and mine a little bit. The defence for what he believes. What's yours? Whether you're a Christian or a skeptic, why do you believe what you believe? Is it a coherent worldview? Can it explain the various truths? And are you consistent with the commission that it results in? Or are you looking for substandard sources of validation, of love, of acceptance? So Paul has given his case. That's his story. That's the first question. He now moves on to some responses. Now Festus exclaims, Paul, you're out of your mind. Too much study. The complexities of this weird monotheistic religion and the nuances of it, it's too much for pragmatic governor Festus. But Paul has been focused on Agrippa this whole time and he continues his focus on Agrippa. So Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe the prophets. Now, this is a bit of a rhetorical tripwire, and Agrippa spots that. Now, whether Paul had been utterly convincing or not, the king was not about to make a public declaration either way. So he gives that offhand, would you make me a Christian in such a, a short period of time? Although what's interesting is, he could have easily said, no, I don't believe what you're saying, Paul. But I think Agrippa has been at least a bit intrigued by what Paul has to say. 
the power of his story. Nevertheless, Agrippa's response allows Paul to close with a statement that shows his true desire. It's entirely consistent with the commission that he gave in his defence. He says, I wish before God that whether easily or with difficulty, not only you, but all who listen to me today might become as I am, except for these chains. Paul's desire is that everyone would recognise that Jesus is king and that salvation is found in him and him alone. I asked at the start, what would you say to power? What's your story? Now, what would your response be? Do you dither like Festus? Sorry, dither like Felix? You're intrigued, but not wanting to give up seeking validation elsewhere, because let's face it, sometimes that can be a bit fun. Felix was mired in scandal, so he was intrigued, but also this was quite frightening for him, which it says uh, previously in Acts. If you're a Christian, do you dither and hope that one day you might sort out that particular issue in your life, that place you go to for that substandard uh, feeling of acceptance or love or validation? Or do you bluster like Festus? Festus was a pragmatic man with military experience, keeping busy in all accounts. He was, he was a good governor relative to his peers. And he dismissed these things as just nuances, as complexities of a religion. He wasn't really his concern. But pragmatic Festus died three years into office. All his hopes and grand plans gone. All the worries of running a prickly province now seem pretty insignificant. As eternity stretches before Festus, that question of whether Christ was raised from the dead now doesn't seem like the nuance that it once was. As Christians, do we bluster like Festus by mistaking busyness for truly responding to, letting the truth of what Jesus has done sink into our lives? Or do we respond like Agrippa by shrugging our shoulders and say, shame, if it wasn't for his appeal, he could have been released. Not my problem, though. Or shame, if it wasn't for this thing here, I'd have had to have made a decision or spoken up about that issue or acted upon that area that I know isn't good for me. But oh well, it's just not for today, not my problem. Or perhaps your response will be like Paul's. See, Paul wasn't afraid of the Sanhedrin or Felix or Festus or Agrippa because he had knelt in front of someone greater. He knew that whatever happened to him in that room, whether injustice or justice was done, he recognised that Jesus was who he said he was and he put his faith in him. That meant that Paul, like you or me, could stand in front of the throne of God himself and know that he'd been declared not guilty. Not because of persuasive arguments or a list of good things that he'd done, but because he knew that Jesus had paid it all. So that if we put our trust in him, we can be set free from the chains of sin, from the permanence of death, and to be restored to a place of honour. See, Paul knew as, as he stood there that one day those tables would be turned and the person sitting in judgment hearing the case 
would be the author and creator of life itself. Sat on his rightful throne. And he's not going to be a ditherer. He's not going to be worried about the tensions of allies. He's not going to have one eye on his future career. He's not going to be unclear about the case that's put in front of him. And he's not going to dismiss it as somebody else's problem. He's going to sit in perfect judgment and he's going to ask you for your story. Paul's plea is the same today as it was then. Whether old or young, great or small, whether you've heard this many times before or just the once, his hope is that you'd be like him, minus the chains. Someone who's had their eyes opened by Jesus, someone who's been completely forgiven and their future absolutely secure. So the second question again, what's your response going to be?